I heard about these stories, the story of two old ladies that left the church. It wasn't this church, so um, just to make that clear. Uh, two, two old ladies that were leaving church one day, the first time they was visiting, and one said to the other one, said, man, that, that preacher, he, he preached a really long time. And the other one looked at her and said, no, he didn't preach a long time. It just felt really long. And uh, th- that wasn't here. Um, but today we're looking at a passage of Scripture that involves about six hours of what would be scripture reading slash preaching and and not only was it a six-hour sermon basically the entire congregation stood for the entirety of the sermon so we're going to start doing that if everybody no i'm just kidding uh just kidding we're not uh we're not doing that and some of you are like i'm leaving this church god has moved uh and uh Anyway, so, so we're looking at Nehemiah 8 where him, Ezra, Ezra comes and brings and reads the, the word of God to the people of God. And God is working mightily among, if you know the context of Nehemiah, the walls are built. They are now safe from the surrounding enemies. So, so their outside is taken care of. And now they're dealing with what is inside. They're dealing with their hearts. They're dealing with their spiritual conditions. And one of the greatest moves here in Nehemiah 8 is one of my favorite passages in Nehemiah is that they have a a spiritual renewal or a revival that comes because of the word of God being brought back to the people. They they read it, they they fall under conviction and repentance under it, and then they celebrate what God has done for them and through them and and provided for them the word of God. And so that's what we're going to dive into in Nehemiah 8. And we're we're really going to see just the importance of the word of God and how we are to... Uh, how do we get kind of spiritual renewal? Some of you may be in a place where you need spiritual renewal. So some of you may be in a place that you, you, you're like, I don't know even what you're talking about. And, and so we would pray and long for and ask God that he would move on our behalf in that way through the reading of the scripture and through the preaching of his word. So let's dive in. I'm going to break up. We're going to read the whole passage. The first segment has some names in it, so bear with me again. But uh, I'm going to read it in three chunks today. So let's start out with the first eight verses. And all the people were gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So, is, so Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the, seventh day, uh, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shammah, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah on, on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hasbanadiah, Zechariah, and Meshalem on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, 
Maasiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peleliah, the Levites, helped the people understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. The first point that I want us to get today, and I've kind of already alluded to this, but that God's word brings spiritual renewal. Contextually here, again, Ezra is bringing the, the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and he's reading them aloud for all the people to hear, and the people stand in awe and, and, and reverence of the reading of the Word of God, and they stand for the entirety of the reading. Praise the Lord, this is a a descriptive passage, not a prescriptive passage, right? That, that this is not what is commanded of God for us uh, to do necessarily. But, but here you have, can you just imagine yourself in the situation? I mean, many of us have had read through the Bible plans that die somewhere in Leviticus, right? And, uh, and, and, and by the time Ezra got to the Leviticus, that was about the three, three and a half hour mark of standing, right it's like okay here we go no, I, I, I kid but i mean the, the the gravity of the word of god that has been far from the people of god now bring being brought back to the people of god was, was such a, 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 a an inspiring moment that they wanted to soak it all in they're standing attentive the ears given to attentive to the hearing to the word of god they they wanted it they desired it they longed for it they needed it and so Ezra is reading uh, the word of God and, 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 and what we see, um, you know, kind of throughout the Bible and what we see kind of throughout church history is uh, oftentimes when the word of God is neglected, the spiritual condition of the people is also nil. It's lacking. It struggles. Um, it deteriorates. And, and, and by God's grace, he will oftentimes biblically we've seen this in church history we've seen this he will send his word and bring spiritual revival spiritual renewal to his people through the renewal of the word of god uh, in their midst and uh and, and and inevitably every revival every spiritual renewal comes with a a, a re-embraced word of god um a great example of this is josiah the the one of the kings in which we name my son after uh, Josiah became king when he was eight, but he he followed evil kings. He, he you know he 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 came after uh, uh, Manasseh and he came after Ammon and and and, and here's Josiah he come, comes the king at eight, but but then about sixteen uh, the 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 he he finds the word of God right uh, uh, Helkiah who was the priest brings to him the word of God and he says where has this been we have to read this among the people and so he brings and gathers up the kingdom and he and they read the word of god together and revival again breaks out and josiah is known as a king that honored the word of god and led his people well according to to the way of god the same thing so that's in the bible several i can read to you several other instances in the bible we can look at church history too if you look at the protestant reformation uh what the protestant reformation was in essence was a revival of the word of god if you remember contextually the roman catholic church uh was restricting the bible to be read by common people so the only way that you could have access to the bible was if you were a priest or, or, or clergy uh, and if you could read latin and and they would persecute any translation of the bible that wasn't in in latin and 
because in order uh, to have greatest control is restrict what God's word says. And, and so the only way that the people would, would know what God's word says, by and large, was they were trusting what the priests would tell them what God's word says. And obviously you could see how that could lead to great corruption. And in fact, it, it did. And uh, and what you had with the Protestant Reformation, and even before the Protestant Reformation, some things leading up to it, but you had men like William Tyndale and, and John Wycliffe who translated the Bible into English. You had men like Martin Luther with the help of the printing press uh, that translated the Bible into German so that normal people could read it. You had men like John Calvin who was preaching expository messages to the people there in Geneva. And so what happened with the Protestant Reformation was nothing less than a renewal of the Word of God being brought upon the people and, and God was so gracious on, on us and, and it's why we gather together in this Protestant church today is because we value the word of God and, and, and because God brought it back to us in that, in that time frame and, and, and particularly in the Protestant Reformation up, up till now. Now what a great blessing it is to have access to the word of God. I think about if we were to live in the time frame, maybe the 1400s, and, 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 and if we were to be able to find a copy of God's Word, which was nearly impossible, we would get it and not be able to read it. But that's not our problem, is it? I mean, most Christian families, maybe a lot of non-Christian families, have up to probably 10 Bibles in their homes. Right or, or for sure we have it at the, at the touch of a finger. We can get any translation we want on, our, on the apps on our phones. So, so our problem is not limited access to the Word of God. Our problem is we don't read it. And our problem is it collect dust. Or, or it gets no screen time on our, on our phone, on our devices. And, and so we have kind of a... Um, an apathy towards God's word, just we, we have so much of it available to us that we just don't take it and, 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 and put it into our hearts and put it into our lives. And, 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 and what we need to understand is that the Bible is necessary for spiritual renewal. It's necessary for, for spiritual revival. Um, if you are not where you want to be spiritually, I would ask you, what is your relationship to God's word? What is your relationship to the Word of God? If you're not reading it, that's the problem. Uh, it, it, you need to get in it. And, 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 and not just reading it. Let me, let me be very clear here. Not just reading it, but understanding it. Uh, if you remember in Jesus' times, they had these religious leaders named Pharisees. And the Pharisees knew the Bible frontwards and backwards. And, and, and yet, when Christ came and put on flesh and dwelt among us, they missed him entirely. Why? Because they knew the facts about their Bibles. They knew their verses. They had the thing memorized. They knew all the scriptures. And yet, it did not take, an understanding in, take on an understanding way in their own lives, in their own hearts. And so what it became was a religion of Christianity, or not even Christianity. What it became was a religion where they practice good deeds and, and keep these kind of rules. And, and if they keep these rules, they're good with God. But they failed to see the heart of the scriptures. They failed to see what they were intended for. This same pharisaical heart is, is a danger for us as well. We, we can be a people that keep, that, that on the outside look really nice. That, man, we, we look like we've got it all together. We might memorize some verses. 
Uh, we might do even a family devotional or, or, or have our own personal devotional. But in reality, that the Word of God has, is not being understood by us. It's just being read. It's just being a, a box that we check off. But we're, we, we're, not, we're not reading it, and, and better yet, being read by it. To the point to where it moves in us to life in Christ. So that it transforms us into the image of His own Son. So, so that it gives us the mind and the heart of Christ. Those are differences. And, and maybe you've encountered or had to fight this in your own heart where, uh, okay, I kind of think, and, and especially maybe if you're new to church, you're, you're new to Christianity, you may have thought by coming here that uh, if you just kind of keep a few rules, do some church attendance, dress real nice, make it look like you got it together on the outside, then God will be pleased with you and just let you into heaven. But that is not the gospel. Matter of fact, that is the antithesis of the gospel. The gospel is, and what the word of God teaches us, is we can never be good enough. See, so many of you come into this place thinking everybody else has got it all together and you're the one that's messed up. The reality is, there ain't a person in here that ain't messed up. There's not a person in here that isn't broken and God has had to repair and fix and move in their heart and life. And so we are a people that come and, and say, I can't save myself. The word of God tells me that there's none righteous, no, not one. And, and, and knowing that the wages of sin is death, I deserve death. But the gift of God is life in the free gift of Jesus Christ. And so we are a people that come and say, hey, yeah, we're broken, but praise be to God that he made a way. And, and, and that way is through his own son. So if you're new to this place, Christianity isn't pretty up your life and God will be pleased with you. Christianity is you can't pretty up your life enough for God to be pleased with you. The only way for, to be right with God is to fall on your face before the son. To put your faith and trust in him and him alone. Not your own good works, not not your spiritual things, not your church attendance, not your baptism, not, not anything, but Christ and Christ alone. And so we, we, we come to the Word of God, not just to read it, but to understand it and, and to be read by it, to, to, to encounter God through it. So, so, so is God's Word bringing renewal to your life? I think it should be bringing constant renewal to the life of believers. Is it doing that for you? Do you fall under conviction as you read or come under the preaching of God's word? Uh, not, if you're still breathing, there's still work to be done on you. So if you say, hey, I don't have any sin, no. <laughs> First John says, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. So are we being examined by the word of God constantly? And it's a beautiful process, and we'll talk about that in my, my next point. I don't want to get to preaching on those toes. The other thing I want you to know before I move on about this passage is we see kind of the importance of, the pre of preaching of God's Word. They, they submit themselves. Ezra stands on a wooden box, you know, and, and, and not just the preaching of God's Word, but they're helping them understand uh, what God's word says, right? They're not just, uh, they're, it's not just a, a cloud over the people and says, man, you don't get this. You know, forget it, I'm moving on from you. But it, it, they are helping them to understand what the word of God says, which is a, a great practice for you. I think you should be a people that press in to say, what does this mean? Not just what does it say, but what does it mean? And then specifically, it, it talks about the role of the congregants. It says that you come with an attentive ear to hear the word of God. 
you come with an attentive ear to hear the word of God. So I would press on you to say, do you do that? American Christianity, by far the culture is more of, I'm going to come with an ear to give a Google review, a Facebook review, or to have the pastor, cut up the pastor for lunch, right? You're going to sit at lunch today and you're going to ask, well, what would you think of the, how did the sermon go? What did you think of the sermon? Well, uh, you know, and, and so you start evaluating, well, it was too long, he yelled too much, um, someone was off key, which I wouldn't know. And you begin to evaluate what is the sermon. But what this is saying is that you're coming with an attentive ear. You should be coming with less an evaluatory heart of what is being presented in front of you and instead present yourself for evaluation before the presence of God. So you come with an attentive ear that say, Word of God, measure me. Do your work on me. I'm coming not to be entertained. This is not a movie theater. I'm coming into the presence of God to worship your name and to stand in your presence and be seen by you and asking the word of God to move through me and make me more like Christ. That we would come with an attentive ear. We would come through those doors ready to, to do business with God, with our brothers and sisters in Christ who are also around us doing business with God. The other thing I love about this, and I think it's one of my priorities in preaching, is uh, it says clearly, I love it, it says clearly at the end of that passage. One of the things I feel a burden to do in my preaching and when I communicate anything is to take the truths of God and make them clear. It's so easy to just preach or teach theology and try to impress or put it over where, at the top shelf where nobody can get it. But that's pointless. What's the point of that? There's no point in that what a greater to take the things off the top shelf and say look at how it applies and and how we can use this and how we can understand this in a greater way and this should be the case for you too as you're communicating the gospel in your homes as you're communicating the gospel with your neighbor uh you're not seeking to 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 lay out that three dollar systematic theology word that you learned and they look at you like you got three eyeballs right Learn what propitiation is in layman's terms so that you can explain it in a way that people go, okay, I can see that. I can grab that. I can understand that. We need to fight to continue to be clear with the gospel, as clear as we can be with the gospel. And, uh, and, and, and in preaching, too. I think that's a valuable thing in preaching, and it's one of the things that I, I've tried to, my best to do. I don't always hit that sometimes. All right, let's move on. Verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be quiet. That only works for Levites, by the way. Don't try that on your spouse. Be quiet, for this day is holy 
Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. The second point I want us to grab today is that spiritual renewal brings repentance that leads to rejoicing. Spiritual renewal brings repentance that leads to rejoicing. Contextually, you have Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites, the priests, um, declaring to the people that the, that, that the day is holy, to, to regard the day as holy. And what had happened was that the people of God, in hearing the, 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 the reading of the Word of God, and hearing the, the explanation or the preaching, the understanding of the Word of God, has fallen under such a great conviction that they are broken. They're weeping. They hear the word of God and they realize that they have fallen short of God's standard. They've fallen short of God's way, whether through ignorance because they didn't know the word of God or because of arrogance or, or, or even willful disobedience in that they had heard the word of God maybe or they kind of knew it, but they walked a different way. But now they're hearing the word of God and God moves to the preaching and the reading of the word of God and they are broken over their sin. They are weeping over their, over their own sin. Now, before I move on, I want to talk about what repentance is. Because I think this is a practice, A, that doesn't get preached a lot, but also B, we don't know how to practice it. What, what repentance often looks like for us, or what we think repentance looks like for us, is, is uh, we, we fall, we sin, and uh, we feel guilty over that sin. And so typically what we do is we kind of we pull away from God, from church, from anyone who would resemble God or church. And we kind of pull away, we kind of separate ourselves until we feel like enough time has passed that we feel like, okay, maybe God forgot about that and he's good with me again. And that could be days, weeks, for some it's months and years. That is not repentance. It is not repentance. Repentance certainly has a level of, of weeping to it, sorrow to it, a contrite heart, a, a sincere regret, a remorse for, for, for walking contrary to God's way, a, a brokenness that doesn't just stop in brokenness, though. It turns to uh, away from sin. That, that begins to say, okay, I'm no longer going to walk that way. I'm going to walk according to God's way. That's a part of repentance. And so there's certainly a level of brokenness to it. Well, I want to read to you a quote from Piper that I read this week that I thought was really good. Pastor John Piper says, Warning has value in stirring us up to take the glories of holiness and heaven seriously so that we come to see them for what they are and delight in them. But it is the delight in them that causes the true grief when we fall short. If you didn't understand any of that, here's what sums it up. No one cries over missing what they don't want to have. No one cries over missing what they don't want to have. You see, revival is more than just feeling guilty or being caught doing something. Re repentance is... Uh, it, it, it is understanding that there was a broken fellowship with God and more than you feel guilty over your own sin, you are broken over broken fellowship with God. 
Repentance deals with, hey, I, 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 I want Christ over all things, and me walking contrary to Christ's way puts, a, puts just a, 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 a wall between us. It's not a wall that can't be crossed. It's not a salvific wall if you're a Christian, but, but, but certainly there's, there's, there's a, a detachment of relationship that you pull away from Him because your heart is led towards sin. And your brokenness comes from the realization that you hate that. You want Him. You want to have right relationship with Him. You want to walk in step with His way. You, you, you want to walk according to His law. Now, you're not going to do that perfectly, so our lives are going to be this constant repentance and, and coming and walking according to His way. But that's what you want. That's what you long for. And you don't cry over the things you don't want. So if you lack repentance in your life, I would say you probably don't want him. You probably don't want him. You might want to look like you want him. You might want to put on a facade like you want him, but do you want him? Do you want right relationship with him? For this is what repentance looks like. It, it looks like a brokenness before him that you want to walk according to his way and you long to have right relationship with him and you don't want anything to come between you and him. What we view as loss reveals our values. Are you more afraid of sin because what it'll cost your reputation or what it'll cost your relationship with Christ? Does it bother you when you don't spend time alone for God, not because alone with God, not because you feel guilty about it, because you're missing out on time with him. You're missing out, you have you have a longing that is going unfulfilled. Does sin create deep repentance because we feel the pain caused by loss of fellowship? And certainly the process with repentance doesn't stop there. It should move us to turning from our sin and, and clinging to him. This is the beauty of, uh, you know, the scriptures talk about that it is his kindness that leads us to repentance, that even in repentance, it's an act of worship of our great God. And here's how it goes, right? We fall in sin, which we're all going to do. We come to the realization of that. He convicts us of that. We repent of that, and we turn to him. And where he gets honor and glory is that we're a people that quickly turn to him and say, we are not God. We cannot clean up ourselves. We cannot fix ourselves. We desperately need you. We desperately need the cross, and we will every day need you, and every moment need you. We fall on our face in entire dependency upon him. Now, here's where Satan gets a lot of victory. Of course, he, he's an enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to get you to fall. He wants to get you to sin. He, he wants to get your eyes off of Christ and onto the world. He, he, he wants to, you know, uh, uh, just, just, just pervert your heart and pervert the gifts that he's given us. He wants to pervert things like sex and money and, 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 and things that he's, gifts that he's given us and, and pervert them. He wants to do all of that. And so he wants to draw us away. Now, part of the victory is getting us to fall away, sure. I think his greater victory, though, is when we fall and we stay there. I think his greater victory is when we wallow in grief, guilt, 
shame, and we, and we stay there. We stay in guilt. We stay in shame. And we don't remember Romans 8, 1 that says, Therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we stay in the floor, and we never get back and worship the God who deserves worship. We say, Woe is me. I can never be saved. That is arrogance. God is bigger than you. And he's far greater than your own sin. So for you to wallow in it and to say, I'm not worthy to come back to God, is, is really, you think it's honoring God, it's really dishonoring the cross. And so we are a people that, yes, we fall, certainly we're going to sin. But when we do, we turn back to him quickly. We, we repent and we come to him and say, I need you. Every hour, I need you. You're my one defense, my righteousness. I need you. And again, we, we see that it's his, it's his kindness that leads us to that. But what does that make sense? It's God's kindness that brings conviction. It's God's kindness that lets us walk according to his way. It's God's kindness that opens our eyes to the fact that we've been walking contrary to his way. And he, he, he's not angry with you. It's his kindness that's drawing you closer to him. That's a beautiful thing of God. And so we, as the people of God, need to understand that kindness and, and move away from wallowing in guilt and shame and run to the cross of Christ. It's the, he is the one that turns mourning into dancing. Let him do that in you. Which leads me kind of to the last part of this point where the end of the passage, when he talks about like a repentant heart leading to a rejoicing heart, the passage says, make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. I remember the night I came to Christ, and I was 16 when I came to Christ, and I didn't grow up in the church, so my story is... is, is very Pauline in its conversion. Um, but from that, not just that point though, but several things in my life, several nights of great repentance from that point till today, where I felt a weight of sin on me. A weight of sin on me. And God, at that night, saved me. And other nights, He, he came and, and, and brought me in His kindness to repentance. And once I understood the forgiveness of God over, for my sin, that, that the wrath of God does not remain on me, that the wrath of God, that those sins deserve to be poured out on the Christ and given to me was his righteousness and forgiveness, I felt the weight of the world lifted from me. And what it brings to the believer walking in repentance, it should not just stay there, it should move to rejoicing. It should move to rejoicing that God has saved us. We, we should feel that freedom that we have life in Christ. That he is the one that's bared the burden of our sin and shame. He is the one that made it possible that there's no condemnation for those who in, are in Christ Jesus. And you know what that does for us? It leads us to worship. It leads us to worship. His kindness leads us to repentance, which we 
walk through, we have a genuine sorrow over, and then we turn it over to Him and turn to the cross, Christ, the one in whom we are continuously dependent, and then we praise His name. We praise His name. And I love, it's talking about great rejoicing, but great rejoicing only comes when you understand the Word of God, what the Word of God declares to you. Um, there is a movement probably in most of Christian culture where they try to manufacture this rejoicing without repentance. It is not possible. You cannot force yourself to have some kind of joy in the Lord that is not produced in you because you realize He has saved you and freed you and forgiven you from great sin. So where we get joy of the Lord is because we understand the depths in which God reads to pull us up and bring us to Himself. And so that's how we can be a rejoicing people. Because we know what we deserve. We know what our sins deserve. And yet we didn't get it. Said we got something far greater. This is the mercy of God. This is the grace of God. And it causes the people of God to rejoice in God. That's a beautiful message of the gospel. Now, I'm going to read the rest of the passage here because I want to close out kind of still in that same line of thinking. Verse 13. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square of the water gate, and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from, the, from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was a very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. The last point I want us to walk through today is that spiritual renewal culminates in celebration of God. Spiritual renewal culminates in celebration or worship of God. Contextually, What's going on here in Nehemiah is the celebration of the Festival of Booths. Uh, so this was a, a, a festival that, that was practiced five days after Yom Kippur. And what they were celebrating in the Festival of Booths is that they were remembering that God had delivered their people from, Israel, from, from Egypt, Egyptian slavery. 
provided for them 40 years in the desert, and then also provided for them the promised land. So they would come out for a week, live in a tent, basically, uh, to remember that their people were nomadic in the desert for 40 years while God provided for them. Their sandals never wore out. They were fed, they were watered, and God provided for them for those, those 40 years. So they come together to celebrate the provision of God on the people in the past, but also the provision of God now. They did it at the end of the agricultural season. So they had just reaped a harvest, and this is a very celebratory event in which they're praising God for the harvest that he reaped, that, that he brought to, their, to, to provide for them food, wine, all, oil, all those things. That he provided for them in, in these ways. And so they celebrated the fact that God or, was providing for them, and they would pray for the upcoming rainy season that he would do so again that he would continue to provide for them. So this feast was the most celebratory of all, all the feasts because it, it was just a, basically a big party. Everybody get in tents and, and go party and, uh, you know, celebrate. Bring, bring, eat the fatted calf, bring the sweet wine, give portions to people. You know, like it was just a celebration, a community event to come and celebrate the goodness and provision of, of God. And, and, um, and so I think there's a lot for us to learn here, particularly in how we view our own lives and how we how, how we worship God too because what we see here is a, a, a culture being set in Israel that is a celebratory culture and I think on what was happening in Jerusalem needs to happen in, in, in the universal church it needs to happen in this church and it needs to happen in your life personally where you develop a, a, a cultural uh, a culture of celebration in your heart in your life a celebratory culture should reign in your heart and life. Now, let me explain with this what I think this means. This does not necessarily mean that you're going to skip to my loo around this, you know, auditorium every Sunday. Now, you might. I don't know. Um, but I, I don't think that's what it means. I don't think it necessarily means you got you got to always be hunky-dory, right? I, I think there is a celebration of God that comes even in the deepest of valleys, I think there's a celebration of God that comes even with great suffering. But, but that we have a celebratory heart means that we are a people that praise God for his provision and his deliverance over us in our life. Primarily, the spiritual provision and deliverance that we have received from God, that we no longer walk in sin and death, but we walk in life in Christ. And so we should be a people that celebrate God because of that very thing. Uh, so that means that, you know, a celebratory heart and, and, and a grumpy individual don't coincide with one another. And this, I'm not just talking about put on a face for church. I'm talking about when you go to work on Monday morning, you should have a celebratory heart of what Christ has done for you. Now, there are a lot of ways that we practice this. One, one of the ways that we practice this is when we come together, we worship God. We sh- this should be a cel- celebration in here of all that God has done. Again, doesn't mean that everything's going great. You may be in, 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 a, in, a, in a hard and difficult spot. There are people in this church that are walking through valleys right now. There are individuals that have lost loved ones recently that are faithful and coming to this place and celebrating God because he has still saved them. And so they develop this culture of celebration in their, in their own heart. They come and they sing the song, God, I need you. You're my one defense, my righteousness. I celebrate the fact that you are the only way that I have life. 
both now and eternal. I celebrate that with all that is within me. I'm going to sing loud the truth that it is God that has saved me and provided for me everything I need in him. We do that when we come to the Lord's table. When we come, we, if you're new here, we, we take communion together once a month at the end of the month. When we come to the Lord's table together, we're celebrating the, the life and the death of, uh, and the resurrection of Christ that laid down his life that we might have life. He took the death that we should have died and gave us the life that he lived. And we celebrate that. The, the, the worst sin to ever be committed, and we gather around it and celebrate. Because it brought life to us. And glory to God. And so we, we come to the table and we, we are celebratory people. We, we, we give praise to God and because of how he has provided for us in, in that way. We, we celebrate him for how he's also provided for us physically. And I'm not just talking about like a ritualistic prayer before you eat a meal, right? Um, you know, God is great, let's eat, you know, whatever. And uh, I'm talking about being truly thankful for, you, you know, one of the things I love about the Festival of Booths here is that they saw the provision of God and they celebrated it by getting very minimalistic and getting themselves intense for a week. You know how we celebrate it? Nice Air, Airbnbs on the beach. Praise be to God, you know. But I think there's something healthy to saying, I just want to focus on how great God has been to us in many, many ways. And so I think it's healthy for us to stop and just look at how all the ways that God has provided in our life and just start calling them out. God, you deserve praise because you have given this. You deserve praise because you've delivered from this. You deserve praise because you've provided in this way. You deserve praise because of all you have done, period, but all you've done in my life too. Like you deserve my heart to be celebratory for just simply who you are. And we give praise to God for his goodness and his, and his grace. And we, we cultivate this, this heart that is celebratory and, and, and primarily because of the gospel. Primarily because God made a way to save sinners without which we would be damned. And that should invoke some kind of praise in you. If you are a Christian at all, that should invoke some kind of praise in you. Some kind of celebratory heart that says, yes. Praise be to God. I didn't deserve life eternal, and he laid down his life to give it to me. Praise be to God. Now, in, in wrapping up, I, I just in concluding, I think what we've seen is we've seen in Nehemiah the word of God bringing a spiritual renewal that led the people to a repentance, and that was the kindness of God, and that kindness drawing people to repentance and leading them not just to wallow in that, but to come out of it as a rejoicing, celebratory people. The, the, the text at the end here says that, uh, that they were, uh, there was a very great rejoicing. There was a very great rejoicing because they realized all the ways that God had provided for them. They realized all the way that God has, God has delivered them in their life. I want this to be said of this church. I want it to be said of you, personally. If someone were to look at your life and say, that person has a very great rejoicing. And again, it's not manufactured in your own power. It's simply because you are falling on your face before Christ and giving him the honor and glory that he is due for the things that he has done in your life. And so I would love for it to be said about this church that there was, a, there was a very great rejoicing. Not fake it till we make it, but a genuine praise of Christ for what he has done. 
See, again, I'll, I'll reiterate to this. The temptation for you is to come in here and to think you're the only one that God needs to work in. But that is the furthest thing from the truth. We are all broken. Every soul in here needs a radical, needed a radical salvation and a movement of God. If there was someone who thinks that they did not have that kind of sin or that they still don't have that kind of sin, 1 John says you're a liar and the truth is not in you. We are constantly a people in, in a, a mode of repentance. So therefore, we should be constantly a people moved by his kindness and led to rejoicing. So we want, I want this church to be a, a rejoicing church simply in what Christ has done to accomplish life in us. Rejoicing, not, not, because, we, not, not because of anything in us, but simply because we have seen all that God has done for us. Now, here's kind of what I want to do. Um, I'm, I'm going to pray in just a moment, but I'm, I'm going uh, to get a little Baptocostal on us for, for a second, okay? Um, Keith's going to come up here and play a little ditty, and, uh, and uh, uh, here's what we're going to do. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I think um, this may not work. I don't know. We'll see. Um, I think what would be very encouraging to us as a body, as a church, is this. What I'm going to do in just a moment, because we're Baptists, I don't want to make, I don't, I want you to not have to see everybody. So, so we're going to, we're going to close our eyes in a moment and, 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 and enter a posture of prayer, heads bowed, eyes closed kind of thing. And then I'm just going to ask you to call out, you ain't got to shout it, but I just want you to call out the ways in which God has delivered you, has provided for you, spiritually, physically. I want you to call them out. And I want us to be a church that gives God the praise that he's due together. Can we do that? All right, so, so let's get it started. Why don't you bow your head, close your eyes. Keith's going to play something. And you, you go ahead and begin calling out to God in the ways that he has provided or delivered.